Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. And I don't know why I clapped when I said that. Maybe I'm just that excited today. But hey, joining me in the studio, my co-host, Jonathan Hall. Hey, everyone. How's it going? It's going well for me. I think I feel like I'm in a brain fog. By the way, I'm Will Button. I'm the other co-host for the day. I had to Google my name to see what I was supposed to say for that part of the episode. (laughs) That's how my day's going. Did, Did you find yourself or did you find an imposter? You know, it's really hard for me to find, like when you put my name into Google, because my first name is a verb and my second, my last name is a noun. I don't really turn up that often. Yeah. Okay. Which I don't think is a bad thing. Like you, like if you're Googling me, we, yeah, I I don't want to know why. (laughs) Like if you're trying to get in touch with me and we don't already have a relationship, I probably don't want to talk to you. Well, if I Google myself in incognito mode, I see a whole bunch of people I don't recognize. And then the first text hit is me, my LinkedIn profile. The second one is some guy called the British Chef. Oh. There's someone on IMDb. There's a whole bunch of Jonathan Halls out there. So anyway. Wow. At least I'm in the top three. Yeah. (laughs) And it sounds like they all have pretty cool careers, too. I mean, if they're in IMDb, if they're world famous chefs. So yeah, there's me, there's the chef, then there's me on my personal website. And then there's someone on IMDb who's known for The Walking Dead. So that's cool. Oh, wow. Then the next one is a full professor of pharmaceutical chemistry in Zurich. So yeah, sounds like smart people and cool people. I'm, I guess I guess I have a good namesake. Yeah, you guys should all hook up and then like trade jobs for a day. Hmm. I don't think I want to do the professor of pharmaceutical chemistry, but I might be able to uh, act in... The Walking Dead. I think I could act like a zombie easily enough. <laughs> right. Just find out what his role is in there. <laughs> hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So I want to tell you a story. Okay, tell me a story. I'm I'm working on my, some podcast automation. Oh. So I I use transistor.fm for my podcast. And I want to like automate some of the episode publishing and stuff like that. And they have a cool API that, that lets you do most of that stuff. So first thing I did a couple of days ago when I decided to start this project was look for a, an SDK for this API. And there's a couple for Go, but they're really poorly written. 
or mm-hmm. and, and and unsupported. They're unofficial, of course. So I thought, well, it's not it's not a big API. There's about a dozen or maybe two dozen at most uh, endpoints, so it's not a big thing to do. So I started writing my own sort of SDK around their API. And today, today I discovered when you query for your episode statistics, they re, they report to you a list of uh, daily statistics by default for two weeks, I think, and how many downloads you had per day. The funny thing is, the date format is, I have to remember here, month, month, day, day, year, 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 right? Okay. Not a, not a great date format. You know, I much prefer yeah. some sort of standard, but you know, whatever. As long as it's consistent, I don't care. Right. But it's not consistent because uh, <laughs> when you get to the end of the request and it has a start date and end date, then it's day, day, month, month, year, year, year. So in the middle of the body, the, the day comes first, or the month comes first, and the end of the body, and then the end of the request, the, the, the day comes first. Now, that's kind of annoying, but whatever. I hacked around it. And then I moved on, and I got that endpoint working. And then I moved on to the next endpoint, which is to query uh, not just your overall show statistics, but a breakdown for every episode of your show. So for each episode, you get an array of, of dates and download stats, right? Yeah. Well, on this one, everything comes in day, day, month, month, year, year, year format. So I would call this a bug. Seems like a reasonable term to apply to it, yeah. <laughs> so th- this makes me wonder, where does a bug like this come from? How, how do how do people write code? I mean, I I understand not choosing a great date format for whatever reason. You know, maybe a, a, somebody just didn't think about it. But how do you get two different date formats in the same response? And then how do you get two responses that return ostensibly the same format, but at a different level of detail, and then different formats of of dates there? You know, th- this is weird. Where so. Let's let's make this a broader question. I don't, you know, I don't. I don't think we'll ever figure out where this bug came from. But where do bugs come from? How do things like this happen? Where do bugs come from? What do you think? Well, generally for me, it gets assigned to me as a ticket. You know, things have been going well. DevOps team's not getting a lot of love or respect. So let's go plug some bugs into the system so that we can look like heroes. Because otherwise, the code that I write is generally bug free. Uh, so, so bugs come from Jira in your case, right? <laughs> There's a little delay on my joke there. Got a live studio audience here, with right? <laughs> no, so that's a that's a good question. Just using the the scenario you brought there, because really that seems like it was built in a very task oriented fashion, you know, and. Whenever someone, assuming that someone peer reviewed that, they looked at that without context of how things are being handled in the other the other parts of the application, or like uh, like you've mentioned in the past, specific to logging, one of your pet peeves is implementing logging at every level instead of having a main logging function for your application and just letting it handle the logging for you automatically. Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. But even with this, you know, I'm assuming that these dates have got to be coming from a database and databases are they're kind of picky about their date format. So it almost seems like someone had to look at that and say, no, 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 no. That's ridiculous. We're not using this ISO 1986 format or whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, certainly somewhere along the line, someone made a choice to use an arbitrary date format. And this API ostensibly uses JSON API, but it doesn't follow the spec very closely. I don't know if there's a date format specified in JSON API, but these are, these are dates. You know, so of course you can, you can do, uh, timestamps, those are defined in JSON API, uh, and, and they're standard to J- JSON, I guess, too. But this is just the date, so there's no there's no time value, right? So that yeah. you know, maybe it makes sense to use their own time. But somebody made the choice twice 
more, at least twice, probably more than twice, to use a, a particular format, and they didn't make the same choice every time. Or was, I say they, I don't mean a specific person, but the people or the team involved in doing this. Yeah. So, what's your theory on that? Like, how do we get how do we get to that path? Yeah. In this case, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a safe guess that the parts of this response were built by different people. Someone built a container that included the start and end date, or maybe they added pagination at, at a later time and, and added those fields at that point or something like that. Why the exact same data format? So, so you know, the, 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 the per date format is the same across both requests, but the, the, the date format is different. So you, you get an array of objects that has a date and a value, you know, uh, it says date and then September 12 or whatever, and then you have downloads and a number, an integer. So, you know, that particular object is duplicated across both requests, but it's clearly not the same implementation on the back end, even though it, it, the, the API documentation says it's the same, the back end is completely different. So that, you know, that, that tells me that at least three times this decision was made. Yeah. At least once for each implementation of this object, and then, and then a, a, at least another time for the start and end date fields on, on, on one or more of the requests or, or responses. So yeah, who, whoever's doing this, there's, there's a communication breakdown for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's one of the, it's one of the things I've noticed in my own experience doing reviews for pull requests. You know, whenever you look at it, if you're using GitHub, when you look at it in GitHub, it shows you the snippet that's changed. But there's so many times where there's context above or below that code that wasn't changed that's relevant to answering the question, is this a good chunk of code to approve or not. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's probably one answer to your question, where do bugs come from, is lack of context in peer reviewing changes. And that's, of course, assuming that peer review happens at all. I yeah. Know what kind of development workflow they use at Transistor.fm. I think I know the guy who built that. I might be able yeah. to put you in touch with him. Yeah. Oh, there we go. I, I, I did report this bug to their support. So hopefully it'll be, be fixed. But uh, if not, then yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll hit you up on that. <laughs> so you know, maybe we can zoom out a little bit. What other kinds of bugs do you see frequently, and and and, and maybe to the extent that you know or can guess, where do they come from? Because you know, I, I think this is a. I don't mean to turn it into like a, a a checklist. If you know, here's where these bugs came from. But just generally speaking, where do bugs come from? And and, and if we if we understand this, or maybe the more better we understand it, the better we can address some of these these causes of bugs. Yeah, I think it might be helpful to to understand or to like break it down into buckets because I don't think there will be a a definitive list that applies to everything. But I can think of there's regression bugs, like something that used to work and gets broken. And then there are bugs of implementing a new feature that has some bug in the feature. I think one part of that answer is good testing, which good testing is such an overloaded term, you know, (laughs) like okay, I have unit tests and then I have user acceptance tests and I have uh, synthetic tests. And like, you know, at, at what point do you do you say, okay, enough testing, we just need to roll with it. Like personally, whenever I write code, I find myself writing at least three tests for everything, everything that I'm going to test. There's the test case to make sure that it does what it's supposed to do when supplied with the right data. There's a test to make sure that it throws the right error if it's supplied with incorrect data. And then there's a test to make sure that it does something, whether that's throw an error or log or whatever, when it has incomplete or missing data or an exception. Mm -hmm. But I still don't think that would catch this 
specific bug that you're talking about because we could write tests for all of those yeah and it would still work so someone kind of has to notice this one right it's it's a it's a mismatch it's not it's not that it's functionally broken per se it's that it's uh, it doesn't make sense right so i think it kind of requires some human human understanding to to catch this one yeah i think there needs to be uh, maybe that's another part of the answer is you need like an agreed upon set of rules of how we do business. You see this a lot in, I'm drawing a complete blank on the name, but there's like, uh, for JavaScript, there's um, the uh, the style guides. That's the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can have style guides that might catch part of this, but only if the data is correctly typed so that it knew what type of data it was looking at. But then there's like a higher level style guide of how we architect things, you know, like, this is our, our date format. These are how we build our, these are the naming conventions we use for API endpoints. These are how we name our services, different things like that. So it's, it's almost like a, I don't know that style guide would be the right term for that, but like a, an architecture guide, maybe. So I, I think, yeah, uh, I, I think architecture is, is along the right path. And I, and I think that actually probably gets to kind of the core of the problem in this case, which is that the architecture was not defined well enough that it was easy for this to be done correctly. This is the kind of problem, like, like the, the fact for, you know, the, the simple example would be that the, the fact that the this statistics object that contains the date and the downloads number looks the same on both endpoints, but has two different implementations would, would be a, a, an architectural smell, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there, there's some there's some uh, code duplication happening there and, and that introduced a bug. And that's one of the main reasons to dry your code. Right. Uh, so that didn't happen here. Yeah. And I think that's another another when you talk about microservices, that's another pitfall there that doesn't get discussed very often. You know, this could very well be two separate microservices handling each of these endpoints. And so mm-hmm. yeah. not only is the, the code duplicated, but it has different different functionality. Yeah. Yeah, for all we know, they're written in different languages too, right? Right, yeah. One could be in Ruby and the other in, in uh, Node.js or who knows what. So yeah, so where does that put us? We have, we've talked about regression tests or regression bugs, or regressions, which tests guard against architectural smells, just so many kinds of bugs. Right. <laughs> 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 Trying to what? create a taxonomy for all bugs probably isn't a very useful use of time, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to look like the... Uh... The animal kingdom taxonomy. <laughs> Here we have the early prehistoric bugs. <laughs> well, bugs do tend to evolve, right? So, some of them. Yeah, for sure. So I, I did make a list of, of some things that that can cause bugs, and, and uh, maybe we could start with this, uh, or maybe that's, we've already started, but maybe we can continue with this and add to it, or, or delete some things off the list if I'm wrong. So I think an obvious place where bugs come from is an inexperienced developer. And that, and that happens at so many different levels from just not realizing that, that they're using the wrong syntax or the wrong thing or, uh, you know, an off by one error or whatever. You know, there's so many mistakes that anybody can make and you make more of them when you're when you're inexperienced. And then, you know, at the higher level, you know, inexperienced developers maybe don't know how to write dry code or, or good architecture. And so they, they end up with with 
other layers of bugs as well. One I mentioned that I think I think uh, is appropriate for this channel for a DevOps channel is is the idea of developers not writing their own tests. I think the, the Accelerate book makes a pretty strong case that developers need to be writing their own tests. If they aren't writing their own tests, business outcomes suffer. And, and if I recall, I don't remember the quote exactly, but I, I think the claim was that on in companies where developers are not primarily writing their own tests, there's no improvement in business outcomes versus no tests at all. Yeah, I can see that being the case. I've not encountered that in a long, long time, though. Have you? Where developers aren't writing their tests? Uh, you lucky guy. Really? <laughs> Just sitting over here in my naive little world, huh? Yeah, I, I see. I see a lot where, well, where QA type people, testers are writing tests, and and developers are not. Wow. And I, and I, I see two reasons that this is a problem, and on why that doesn't improve uh, business outcomes. The, the first is that when when a when a tester writes a test, they're writing at a different level than a developer usually. They're not writing unit tests usually. They might be, but generally they're writing more integration or end to end tests, which are slower and more brittle and and less precise. So they're less likely to catch a lot of bugs. But even if you could have a, a, an engineer, or a test engineer writing exactly the perfect testing that would be functionally equivalent to what a developer would write, I, I think this is the big reason why separate people writing tests isn't uh, doesn't improve business outcomes. You don't teach the developers to write better code. You just teach them to throw their crap at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I use the analogy of, of making dinner in my kitchen. When when I make dinner and I leave a mess and my wife complains about it, she has two choices. She can either clean up the mess or she can wait until I clean up. You know, she can, she can yell at me until I clean up the mess. And if she makes me clean up the mess, the next time I mess, I'm less likely to make a mess. But if, if she cleans it up, the next time, I, I mean, for, for one thing, it teaches me to be lazy in the sense of, yeah, I know my wife will clean it up. Uh, but even if I try not to be lazy and I make the mental effort to clean up my mess next time, I may not notice the mess I made because, you know, she cleaned up something that I didn't realize I had done. Right. Uh, so I, I think I think that this sort of psychological phenomenon is, is really the, the underlying reason that developers need to be writing their own tests. And when they don't, from a systemic level, it, it causes bugs. Yeah, I would add to that and say that writing your own tests forces you to think better about how you write code as well. It changes the way that you architect it and you you write it in a way that's designed to be tested. And I think you produce better, more sustainable code as a result of that. And that lesson, like you mentioned, that lesson is lost if you're not the one writing your tests. Exactly. Yeah. But I'd be curious if someone listening advocates the other way and you're a, a big fan of having someone else write the test, hit us up on on Twitter and and let us know and because I'd be really curious to hear what the the logic and, and wins and outcomes of the alternative is. Yep. The next one on my list was developers not being responsible for their own software deployment, which is another DevOps-related thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you write your code and hand it off to the ops team and they're the ones who deploy it and maybe handle on-call situations, you know, when the, when the, when the server crashes at 3 a.m. Or, or, you know, you start serving 500 errors all the time, someone else fixes it. That's not it's the same same exact problem. You know, the, the the developer isn't incentivized to learn the proper ways to do things. Yeah, so. agreed, hundred percent on that. Just had that conversation last night about <laughs> developers being on call and like the lessons you learn from it. And the common argument is, well, it pulls them away from doing their tasks. Like, well, they're not doing their tasks very well if they're spending that much time on call. <laughs> yeah, that, that's I mean, like. I think my first question would be, what do you think their task is? 
Right. <laughs> the old office space reference here. What exactly would you say your job is here? <laughs> what would you say you do here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if a developer's job isn't to to write code that solves customers' problems, uh, or but really to the point, solve customers' problems, and code is the is the the means. Yeah. If they're delivering code that that doesn't work, they're not doing that. So that is their task for goodness sake if you have if you have some other definition of a programmer go become a gardener please leave the industry you, you, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then a very closely related one to that uh is the development team not being responsible to fix their own bugs you know and this comes up when you see like a maintenance team you have the, the the feature team and a maintenance team this doesn't teach the maintenance team to write good code it teaches the maintenance team or the, the feature team to just write as many features as they can who cares if they work the maintenance guys, the junior guys probably, will be fixing our bugs. So that's another place where bugs come from, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's just another, you know, we talk in DevOps a lot about throwing the code over the wall between yeah. software engineering and and IT, and that would be a, another wall to throw your code over. Yeah, throw it down to the, to the junior guys who haven't earned their chops yet. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So I have two more on my list and then we can we can open it up and talk about anything else that comes to mind. The last, well, most of these are really DevOps things, which is which is I think why I wanted to talk about it today. A long delay between bug creation and, and fixing, I think, causes bugs. And, and this all goes back to that, that training your developers to learn how to write bug-free code, right? Uh, if, if I write a bug and I don't hear about it for six months, for uh, there's two problems. One is I've forgotten what I did in the first place. Right. And the second is I don't learn to, that there's an incentive to write bug-free code because, you know, delayed reaction or delayed incentives, delayed punishments, we all know from psychology is is less impactful. So, yeah, putting this in a more DevOpsy way, long cycle times cause bugs. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because the longer that delay is, I know personally, I have a tendency to discount its importance. You know, it's like, oh, I wrote that six months ago and I'm just now hearing about it. It's probably not that big of a deal. Definitely have that conversation sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's been there that long, it's probably not priority. Let's let's put it on the ba- bottom of the backlog. Right. <laughs> there's another six months rotting. The last one on my list, and, and this one might be contentious. So maybe we can, maybe you can argue with me about this one. I, I hope you will. Oh, bring it on. Deadlines. So are you advocating that tight deadlines create more bugs? I think I'm advocating that deadlines in general create bugs. Oh, man. I'm going to linger for a while to explain what I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm trying to think how I'm going to play the antagonist to this. So, okay, I'm going to argue against it, saying that deadlines aren't the source of bugs because deadlines are a way for you to 
define what work you're going to deliver and when it's going to be done. And if that's causing you a problem, it's not a problem with the deadline. It's a problem with your ability to scale or to, uh, to forecast and plan your work. So uh, let, let me be clear that I'm not saying that deadlines are evil. I think they're, I mean, they're, they're often useful. They are sometimes necessary. But I think that when, when a, when a person, a developer, a creative person, let, let's broaden that. When I think when you're trying to implement something creative and you know there's a deadline, you, t- you cut corners. Whether the deadline is there for good reasons or not. So that, that, that's kind of my, my, my theory here. Now, I, I definitely yeah. there are some bad deadlines. You know, there's a lot of arbitrary deadlines out there, like oh, have it done on Thursday just because, and and, and you know, it's, especially unrealistic deadlines are very harmful. Right. But but I think I want to make a broader point. I mean, maybe we can narrow it down to the to unrealistic deadlines in a minute. But I think I want to make a broader point that I think deadlines in general cause people to cut corners. Maybe there's somebody out there who that's not true for, but I, I think on average that's probably true. I don't have data to back this up. It's just kind of a a, a thought I had. <laughs> I think I could gr- agree with you in the case of unrealistic deadlines, but I'm not sure I buy that in the case of generally agreed upon sane deadlines. Okay. You know, cause I think if you have a deadline, if, if you have a deadline and it's, it's realistic, then it's merely a tracking point at that point. And it's just something to, to work towards so that you have a, a fixed goal in mind. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, every, everything that we forecast in our world and put a deadline on it, you know, we we blow past that deadline like Jeff Gordon at the Daytona 500 yeah. and set another deadline. And I'm totally OK with that because everything that we do in our world, you're like, oh, OK, I'll do this. Like, oh, man, that's got problem X and problem X leads to problem Y. And then all of a sudden you're rethinking the whole thing and you have to adjust your deadline at that point. So if you don't have that flexibility to adjust your deadline as you learn more information about the problem you're trying to solve, I can see your point that you're going to have to cut corners to hit the deadline. Mm -hmm. So let me tie this back to my opening story with this transistor SDK I'm writing. I don't have a deadline for this, but I could could easily have created one for myself. I could have said, you know, I want to have a working version in two days or something. I've been working on it for about a week, a little less than a week, right? Mm -hmm. But I've been adding features. Like actually where I found this bug is a feature I don't care about. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need to use it to query statistics. (laughs) But my my thought was, if I'm going to write this SDK, I'm going to open source it. And I might as well, you know, there's there's not that much of a surface area here. I might as well finish the thing. And that way, somebody's more likely to want to use it. And I'm more likely to get a contribution or at least get bug reports if something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I just did the bare minimum for what I need, I'm not, nobody else is going to want to use it. Because I only need three endpoints and nobody's going to want an SDK that only uses those three endpoints, right? Right. So I thought, you know, I could spend... I could spend 50% of the effort to build something only I will ever use, or I could I could double the effort and have something that potentially others will use and I might get some valuable feedback. But there's no deadline. If I had a deadline, I would I would cut off that 50% scope that I'm not going to use. And I probably wouldn't get feedback, and I probably wouldn't do the, is the, the same sort of testing I'm doing right now. I, I would, in other words, I would cut corners. Now, that, is that appropriate? If, this was a, if there was a business case behind this, you know, if there was a business waiting on delivery, then it would totally be appropriate to cut those corners right. and get that software into their hands faster. Since this is a hobby open source project, I don't know. But, so, but, but the point is, at least on this example, it feels to me like the fact that there's no deadline means I'm making better code. And sometimes that's the wrong trade-off. So, to, to be clear, I'm, again, I'm not saying deadlines are evil, 
sometimes deadlines are necessary and useful. And, and, and if this was a business case, it would be very useful to focus on the three endpoints that matter, even if they're, quote, lower quality than to to do a full SDK. So anyway, that's yeah. my point. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's quite reasonable to disagree with it because uh, it's it's not even like a, a firmly held opinion. It's just kind of a, a random thought that I had. So you say there's no deadline. So if two years from now you're still plunking away at this and haven't haven't put it to use, are you okay with that? I, I wouldn't say so. But I would get bored by that point and just move on to something else if it if it took that long. Yeah. So there is a deadline. It's just not defined. I would. It's somewhere between this week and two years from now. Is is that a deadline? <laughs> yeah, because there's a point. There's a point in there where you'll you'll mentally say, "Okay, I'm shipping it or I'm abandoning it." Okay. If we want to, if we want to broaden the definition or use broad enough a definition of deadline to include that concept, then I suppose there is a deadline. Uh, there, there's an expiry date on this project. Yeah, maybe expiry date is better. A better term than than deadline, but I don't know. I mean, I think I, I, I think put, there I is also, a deadline. I could also put an arbitrary deadline, like for six months from now, and and in that case, like uh, honestly, I don't think this is more than another week's. I mean, maximum one week of work before I'm ready to uh, like next week. My pick is my new SDK for. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So yeah, you know, it, it's it's not a big project. It's a pretty simple project. Um, but I, I could put a, a deadline so far out there that it's ridiculous, like six months or two years, even or whatever. Uh, and at that point, it, it wouldn't feel like a deadline because there there'd be no pressure. So you know, in that sense, no, there's no deadline. And it, and if and if my next product manager says the deadline is the year 2030 to fix this bug, then no, that's not going to cause pressure. So not until that. December of 2029. <laughs> <laughs> right. When well, I actually I, I, look I, I, at I it. In the strictest sense, the deadline has to has to inflict some amount of pressure. You know, just having a deadline that's, you know, before the sun the sun explodes is isn't you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I would I would advocate putting a deadline on it just to get closure on it because until you get closure on it, it's going to be mentally tying up cycles in your head. You know, it's it's an unresolved thing. And if you have, you know, if you have too many open file handles, you're going to reach a point where you've exhausted the number of file handles you can have open. Oh, that's easy to fix. Just recompile the kernel. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, it sounds like we agree, though, that that tight deadlines especially unrealistically tight deadlines cause bugs. And and I, 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 would that surprise anybody? I don't think so. I, I know some people in upper management that would be absolutely shocked to hear that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I do agree with you there. Unrealistic tight deadlines will definitely be a source of bugs. And, and I'm okay with setting tight deadlines with the caveat that once we learn more that deadline may become new, null and void, and we're going to set a new deadline based on more accurate information. Yeah. And sometimes, honestly, the thing we need is a hack to, to get through the day. And, right. You know, we know that it's not a perfect solution. Uh, we just need something to, to you know, and if that's the trade-off, fine. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's okay. Sometimes it's okay to accept buggy code if if, if the trade-offs are appropriate, right? Yeah. And I think the, the right way to handle that is, okay, we're implementing this hack to fix this. So here, that's done. We close that bug ticket and we open up a new ticket saying, hey, we created this hack. We need to go back and fix this properly. And, and reference that reference those tickets so there's a clear historical path along that. But yeah, writing a hack, closing the ticket, 
and pretending that the hack doesn't exist just leads to more problems. So, so in my list, I didn't talk about breakdowns of communication over complex architecture, but I think those are, you know, those things we talked about earlier. Those are definitely things that I think can contribute to bugs. So how do you deal with that? Like communication, especially in a remote world. I've been talking with several people about this recently with a lot of us working remote these days. I think a lot of people got excited and said, oh, thank God, I don't have to talk with people anymore. (laughs) But I've been remote for like six or seven years at this point, and I found it's exact the exact opposite. I have to talk more with people than what I would if I were working side by side with them in the office because you have to do um, proactive outreach to communicate. And when you do communicate, whether it's, well, it's most often written, whether that be in a direct message, an email, or a comment on a ticket, I think you have to spend a lot more time thinking about and choosing your words carefully to convey the the meaning that you're trying to convey. So from that perspective, I think being remote actually requires more social skills than being in the office where you can just blurt out whatever pops in your head and then base your second statement on the the body language and the facial expressions of whoever you're talking to. Yeah, you you touched on a topic. We could probably talk a whole episode about this, or I could at least. Uh, I don't know if you have enough uh, interest in the topic, but you know, I've, I've been a, a strong advocate for remote work for a long time. Uh, I started doing it in 2011, I think, and I've done it most of the time since then. Uh, off and on, I've been, had office jobs since then. But you know, I, I think the the key to successful remote work is asynchronous work, and, and there's a tension here because you know a lot of the a lot of the community, especially the XP community is strongly emphasizing synchronous work and pair programming and mob programming and stuff like that and getting rid of pull pull requests and all this sort of, you know, getting rid of asynchronous code review and stuff like that. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit torn between these two two concepts, but I'll, I'll just I'll just play the, the advocate for asynchronous work for a moment. I think, I, I don't know if it requires better social skills, but it certainly requires different social skills than in person. It requires good written and reading communication skills that aren't required when you're uh, remote or when you're in person. So, you know, what, what I think is important to, to, to do is document everything. Document your thoughts. <laughs> Don't just create a pull request with a title, uh, you know, add field to, to struct or, or to, to, to object or whatever. Explain why you're adding that and the thought process that went into it, which customer you're doing it for, and so on and so forth. You know, leave leave a, a, a huge breadcrumb crumb trail to how you got to this point. So that somebody, and that somebody likely will be you in six <laughs> right? <what> you're doing, <laughs> can can figure out what's going on. And you know, so you know, I, I've said for a long time, and it's only recently I've started to question whether this is universally true, but I've said for a long time that remote working successfully remote working remotely successfully improves your co-located working skills as well. Because if you if you write everything down in, in Jira or in GitHub or on a wiki or an email, whatever. I don't care. As long as it's documented somewhere. If you learn how to communicate effectively written in ways that are, are discoverable, that's also an important aspect. It's not enough just to write a 15-page a, a document on Slack that's going to be lost 10, 10 days later. Right. Know, it has to be someplace discoverable. That those, are, those skills are hugely valuable. They're essential if you're remote, but they're still incredibly valuable even if you're co-located. So I've, I've been a, a long-time advocate for these, these sorts of skills, learning to do this better. And, and every time I hear somebody tell me, oh, remote is just not as effective, what they're saying is that people don't have these skills. Yeah. 
if you Absolutely. have these skills, working remote is as effective, if not more effective than working in person. Because when you're in person, you have interruptions and you have that person who doesn't know how to write something coming over. Hey, Will, where, where was that document you sent me last week? Can you send it again? You know, the crap, crap requests like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Which goes back to the bus factor, because if you if you're knowledge management system involves asking someone personally, what do you do when that person is on vacation or no longer with the company or deceased? Mm -hmm. So I I agree with you hundred percent there. One of the tools I like to do because to facilitate that or to guide people to that comes in the form of GitHub templates, you know, a new issue template or a pull request template and a, a readme template for a new repo where you can lay out those bullet points and kind of say, here are the things that you should think about adding to this. And they're, they're free to delete whatever section may not be relevant, but by putting it in front of them, it sparks the creative juices of like, oh yeah, that piece of information might be relevant. Mm-hmm. Yep. So anyway. We could talk about that longer. I'm, I'm really interested in diving into that topic, uh, the, 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 the dichotomy between the power of synchronously two brains working on the same piece of code versus the, the efficiency of working uh, asynchronously if you can get your team to merge, pull, you know, to review code effectively and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, whoever does that with me is whoever does that with me is going to have to be really, really comfortable with curse words. <laughs> That's like 90 percent of my coding. <laughs> <sighs> Anything else to talk about on this topic? No, I think we pretty much narrowed down where bugs come from. So we can look forward to those just disappearing in the next few weeks after this episode releases. Great. Looking forward to the bug free world that we are about to usher in. Yeah. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right, let's do some uh, bug-free picks. Awesome. You got anything ready? So I'm going to I'm gonna pick after I... I piss on him a little bit for having a buggy API. I'm going to pick transistor.fm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm actually quite happy with their service uh, and their customer service was quite responsive when I reported this bug and when I asked about a developer account and so on. Uh, and I've been using them for a year and a half for my own podcast. So if, if you're thinking about starting a podcast and you totally should, uh, transistor.fm is a great place to go. It's about, I think it's 19 US dollars a month uh, for their starter plan, but I've never had a need to go to something more expensive. So there are other options, of course. Uh, check them all out. But yeah, Transistor.fm is a, cool, a good one. I, I right on. Pick. Excellent. So I've got I've got two picks. The first one, I'm going to pick my own YouTube channel. Hashtag shameless self-promotion. YouTube DevOps for developers because I'm just over 7,000 subscribers on the channel. And I'm hoping to hit the 10,000 subscriber mark by the end of the year. Um, awesome. Yeah, I think I can. I think I can make that happen, and there's no real reason for that other than I just I think it would be cool. So, yeah. if you haven't checked out my YouTube channel, DevOps for Developers, and give it a subscribe. And my second pick is is more of a what the pick because I've been on this quest lately to do better infrastructure as code, and it dawned on me. You know, like when you look at any system, what's the biggest weakness of every system? And it's it's always the humans. We're the ones that screw everything up. 
you know, ultimately, like even going back to the bug situation, there's always a human at the root of every bug. And in infrastructure as code, I've looked at a lot of the work we've done to document how our services are built, how they're run, how they scale. But I see very few people addressing the humans that are involved in your infrastructure, talking specifically about who has access and what level of access do they have to your AWS account. And so I've taken on the task of documenting that, putting that in a GitHub repo so that no one gets access to AWS without opening a pull request and then documenting the requested actions that they would like in there. That pull request gets merged, automatically deployed. And if it ever changes, you know, we have a an audit trail in the Git history to show why it was changed and who changed it. But taking that one step further, we use Control Tower and have multiple AWS accounts under an umbrella AWS account. And there's this tool from AWS called the Account Factory for Terraform that lets you deploy AWS accounts in your account factory using Terraform. But I'm still trying to wrap my head around it and implement it because I'm like, what on earth is this? It's Terraform, but it launches DynamoDBs and Step Functions and Lambda Functions and S3 buckets, all to seemingly create just another AWS account. So I'll be back next week with more info on how that process worked out because I'm just trying to get it scoped out and working to see if it's a go-no-go decision on is this how we really want to create accounts. But uh, I bring it up because if you've used the account factory for Terraform. I really want to hear from hear what your experience was with it because they throw out in their documentation GitOps and infrastructure as code. But my initial opinion on this tool is they totally missed the mark on that. So I'm curious to get someone else's opinion. All right. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, sounds good, man. I'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs> right on. So long, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.